0: My name is Carmen Lopez. Today is November 18th and I am here with
1: Sophia Elijah
0: for Our Streets, Our Stories, Oral History project focused on the justice system. So Sophia, can you tell us about your experience with the justice system?
1: Sure. Hi, Carmen. I'm a criminal defense lawyer and for over 30 years I have defended people accused of crimes and defended young people who were accused of delinquent acts, both here in New York and in Massachusetts, and I've also represented people in federal cases. I've also been involved with monitoring prison conditions and organizing people to advocate for changes in the criminal justice and prison systems.
0: What made you um, get involved with this work?
1: I am a child of the 60s and I saw how the criminal justice system was being used to quell dissent. Uh, in particular, I was focused on how it was being used to attack the members of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And although I went to to college to be a doctor, uh, a pediatrician in fact, somewhere during that time when I was in college and shortly afterwards, I decided that I could best serve the community that I came from by becoming a lawyer. And my thought was that I was going to defend revolutionaries. Oh,
0: that's great. Um, what have you learned um, by experiencing the justice system from your perspective?
1: I have learned that the justice system is <laughs> terribly broken. Now, some will argue that it's not broken at all, that it is doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is repress poor people and people of color. Um, and from that perspective, I would say then it's it's working just fine. But I look at it as a tool that is destroying families and destroying communities and guaranteeing second-class citizenship for poor people and people of color in the United States.
0: Has there been any anecdote where you um, that you have experienced that has really touched you, like a specific Situation.
1: There's so many experiences that I've had that have touched me, um, but I think there's two that I'll that I'll point out. One involves a man named George Williams, who was uh, 29 years old, serving a short sentence, um, and he was in Attica Prison and shortly before he was due to be released from prison, he was attacked by a group of guards and brutally beaten within an inch of his life for doing nothing. They left him permanently crippled. They broke his legs in several places, his left eye socket, several of his ribs, his left shoulder blade, multiple bruises and lacerations all over his body. That happened in 2011. His case was the first case in the history of the Uni- of New York State where guards were actually prosecuted for brutalizing someone who was incarcerated The s- saddest thing about what happened to mr. Williams is that it's the norm every single day in some prison some place in New York State, someone is beaten as badly as Mr. Williams by guards and that are allowed to do that with impunity. That um, reality is part of what drives me to do the work that I do today. The other scenario is a, a man named Antonio Yarborough. He's from Brooklyn, who at the time of his arrest was a straight A student, star of his basketball team, had never been arrested before. He was charged with the horrific crime that had been um, done to his family. His mother, sister, and cousin had been murdered. And when he came home, he discovered them, called the police. The police arrested him, charged him. He was tried three times, excuse me, tried three times during the... awaiting his different trials. He spent two years on Rikers Island and then 20 years in Attica prison before he was finally exonerated. It's a gross miscarriage of justice. Those types of scenarios are so commonplace in our so-called justice system that that is what drives me to do everything possible to overhaul them.
0: And what is causing... um these scenarios to happen? What is the, you know, where are the loopholes or the...
1: Well, there's there's a lot of intersections. One is um, the criminal justice system is totally intertwined with racism in this country. The brutality that people are subjected to is also tied with the history of racism in this country. You have unchecked power in every step of the justice system as it pertains to law enforcement, from police to district attorneys to uh, judges to probation and parole officers, prison guards, superintendents, and wardens. Every single place along that continuum, you have unchecked power and racism. And those things combined result in the disaster that we see today. In New York State alone, there's over 50,000 people who are incarcerated. More than 65% of them are black and brown, despite the fact that black and brown people make up about 13% of the population in New York State. And you see those those disparate impacts played out throughout the country in every state that you look at. Mm
0: Um, how do you envision a more fair justice system?
1: The only way we will get to a more fair and just system is the people themselves have to take power. And you know, as I said, I'm a child of the '60s, and at the time there was a phrase called "seize the time and seize the power," and people power. But there really is something to be said for that, because if history has taught us nothing else a more just system is not going to come from the top. trickle-down effect doesn't exist with respect to the justice system particularly. And so it's going to require the collective efforts of all well-meaning people to gather and force the changes in the system.
0: What have you learned from working in this Area.
1: One of the things that I've learned from working in this area is the real definition of a phrase I used to hear when I was a teenager from activists who were older than I was, and they would say, you know, we're in for a protracted struggle. And I used to think, oh, that sounds really sexy. What is protracted struggle? What does that mean? And over the decades, I've come to understand a protracted struggle means that you're going to work hard for all of your life, until you take your last breath, if you are committed to building a more just and equitable society.
0: And how do you do that?
1: You know, There's a, um, a phrase that Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture used to say all the time that still resonates very true today, although the phrase is more than 40 years old, and he used to say, educate, agitate, and organize. And I think that is exactly the formula that we need. First, people have to be informed about what the problem is. Then they have to get agitated enough to do something about it. And then they have to be organized to use that agitated energy to collectively build, to bring change. A hopeful story that I'd like to share is this. One day I was getting ready to give a a speech over at Riverside Church and I was walking down the aisle towards the front of the auditorium to take my seat, and a woman who I didn't know came over to me, full of emotion, and as she started to talk to me, she began to sob, and I thought, oh my goodness, something horrible has happened to someone that she loves very much, and she says, Ms. Elijah, you don't know me, but I know who you are, and I want to tell you how much I appreciate what you did for me and my husband. And I'm still not understanding. I'm thinking, quite frankly, that she has me confused with someone else. And then she proceeds to tell me that her husband was a man that I had hired um, at my organization, at the organization I was running at the time, and that her husband had served more than two decades in prison. And that the fact that he had a job, make, made a job that recognized his dignity and humanity, where he could put on a suit if he wanted to today and come to work and sit behind a desk in his office and take a coffee break when he wanted to, she said that meant so much to restoring his ability to feel like a whole person. That that experience, um, I'll never forget that, and it helped me to know that I should never stop doing this work. They stayed together almost 30 years um, before they separated, but the entire time that he was incarcerated, and for a good while afterwards, they were together. Uh, it was just, yeah, and now he's a, he's a major organizer and activist here in New York. yeah, That's great. Mm -hmm.
0: What about the work that you're doing right now?
1: So the Alliance of Families for Justice really is built off that theme from Kwame Ture. I learned over the course of time that families serve prison sentences with their loved ones who go to prison. They are devastated. Mother's children, aunties, uncles, grandmothers, cousins, everybody does the time with quote unquote June Bug who goes to prison. All right. And the emotional drain, the economical j- drain, the psychosocial impact, it's trying to come on, um, makes a big difference. And I also knew that as the conversation has been evolving around criminal justice reform, there's been a growing attention to the fact that people who are formally incarcerated ought to have a voice in what's going on, and that is very important. But no one was championing the fact that the families who are also doing the time ought to have a voice. the 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 relationship between family members and the person coming home is central to to the issues of recidivism to success for a person coming home or not being successful. Most of the time, no one knows the person who's coming home better than the family that knew them before they went away. And they have have had no say so. Also research has shown that the families of people who are incarcerated are the least likely to be civically engaged, the least likely to vote, the least likely to participate on school boards and any other t- um, manifestation of civic engagement. So, is
0: that a s- result of their families' incarceration? It,
1: it's tied to that. It's tied to poverty. It's tied to a sense of despair and that the system doesn't work. All those things, when you put them together, and you think about the disparate impact on Black and Brown communities, you're you we are creating an increasingly marginalized group of people in this country and i'm not going to talk about recent elections however when, when, when i looked at those those factors i said the formula to address this is exactly what the alliance of families for justice focuses on so our first pillar is to support the families and people who have a criminal record by providing them with counseling services mentoring services to, to lift up that family structure. Once that family structure is lifted up, then give them advocacy and communication skills training so that they can be the voices for their own concerns and issues and do voter education and voter registration so not only can they be advocates, but they can be a voting power and force to bring about change. Great. So
0: that.
1: That's the strategy behind it.
0: What about your previous job? Can you tell us
1: about So before starting the Alliance, I was at the Correctional Association of New York, which is an organization that is now 171 years old. When I joined it, I was the first person in its history to not be a white man to head it. That brought a number of dynamics, shall I say. The organization is unique and very, very special in that it is one of only two organizations in the whole country that have a legislative mandate enabling them to go into the prisons and jails and monitor the conditions in there and report out their findings. That legislative mandate does not include advocacy or direct service or lobbying. So the the power of the organization was to expose the injustices. The next step is what I'm doing now, which is to do something about what's been exposed. Um, The organization is currently based in Harlem. It's a statewide organization and has a wonderfully dedicated staff.
0: What are the examples of the things that you were able to find?
1: The... Correctional Association discovered a whole host of human rights violations that were occurring inside prisons and jails, including shackling pregnant women during childbirth, including the denial of adequate mental health care for people experiencing mental health challenges, um, substandard food, very minimal educational opportunities and vocational opportunities. Um, abusive use of solitary confinement for for many, many years um, and physical abuse ranging from one-on-one abuse by a guard to beat up squads of guards going around brutalizing individuals and groups of individuals who were incarcerated horrific beatings such as the one I described that um, George Williams experienced and murder. They've killed, uh, back in 2010, they murdered a man named Leon Sullivan, who was incarcerated at Sullivan Facility, and it's caught on videotape, and nothing was done to those guards. In April of 2015, at Sullivan Facility, the guards beat um, Carl Taylor to death, and a week later, they beat um, Samuel Harrell to death at the Fishkill Facility. Then this year, they beat a man, um, not remembering his full name, at Clinton facility to death. And in March, they beat and that was on May nineteenth. And then in March of twenty sixteen, they beat a man at um, the Attica facility to death. So this is ongoing. So those are some of the atrocities that I've that I've that we discovered um, at Clinton. They were using waterboarding. Um, putting plastic bags over people's heads and beating them, suffocating them to, to almost death, and then taking the bag, the plastic bag off and beating them some more. It's routine.
0: What conditions are there so that they are, are allowed to do this thing?
1: You have, as I mentioned before, unfettered power. Um, you have, particularly in New York State's prison system, most of the prisons, are located upstate New York in rural poor white areas. And the majority of the incarcerated population are black and brown people from New York City and other urban centers in the state. And so you have a, a race dynamic that's, that's played out in similar fashion the way lynchings were played out in, the, in this country. You also have a scenario where The Prison Guards Union is a very powerful union, and they have a contract that protects them from um, sanctions that even a well-meaning Department of Corrections administration is not able to take action against them because of these protections by the, the union contract. And in fact, when, in the rare instance, when the Commissioner of Corrections has taken action, despite the contract, the Prison guards Union has gone into court and challenged and won against the department. Uh, So you have unchecked power. And as we know, absolute power is always absolutely abused.
0: What What are the specific steps that need to be taken care of to in order to change?
1: That? We need a complete overhaul. And I'm going to focus on the prison system. As I, I talked about the criminal justice system would we'll be here till next week. But with respect to the prison system, I think one of the first things that we need to do is we have to recognize and accept it is not repairable. We can't tinker around the edges and fix it. So we have to be willing to start over from scratch. One of the first steps is that anyone who's going to work as a guard, and we could replicate this with respect to police, but anybody who's going to work as a guard should have to be vetted by the community. I know that sounds pretty radical, but if you are reviewed by the community that forms the population that you're going to be responsible for care, custody, and control, then you're much less likely to abuse the people um, who are inside. And if you do, then the community should have the ability and the right to rescind your, uh, your, jo- your position as a prison guard. Prison guards should be viewed as people who provide support, much in the way that that system works, say, in places like Sweden right? or Germany. Now, there's other problems there, but um, the mentality of the, the role of someone who has the title of prison guard Um, ought to be from a social work um, perspective that would go a long way then there should be the the actual physical plant should be changed so that it is a supportive one no one ever is going to thrive and succeed in a cage and that's what we're doing with people we're housing people in places that are unfit for animals and in fact if we put animals in the same kind of conditions that we put human beings, there would be a gross outcry from the ASPCA about what's happening to animals. um, Another thing we need to do is put meaningful educational and vocational opportunities um, in those systems. And before, excuse me, in those facilities. And before we even get to that, we need to take a giant step back and challenge our default reliance on locking someone up to deal with aberrant behavior. We take the cheap, shortcut way to create a false sense of safety as opposed to a humane examination of where has society failed the individual when a person would engage in aberrant behavior that might harm another human being we need to get to a place where we look at human beings as being our most valuable natural resource as opposed to being disposable and objects that we lock up and throw away the key. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. Thank you very much for coming.
1: Okay, thanks for having me.